Well, it's not the first time that I've gotten something wrong with days. Uh, I've, I've, in my time as a lawyer, made one or two scheduling mishaps. Thankfully, nothing that ended up being uh, costly. But it's something that makes you uh, a bit paranoid as a lawyer, missing a date or miscalendaring something and missing an important deadline. But this week, as I was preparing for the sermon, I, I like to uh, do of what my father before me did and uh, try to preach on the Monday morning reading from our Bible reading calendar. And so all this week, I was convinced that Monday morning, or that Monday had been on a certain day in April, and I had been preparing to preach on the prodigal son. And then this morning, as I was going to write out kind of my outline and get ready, I realized, well, that was the wrong day. That Monday, in fact, it was... In fact, Luke chapter 16, and a whole nother set of problems arose for me. With the prodigal son, my difficulty was figuring out, how am I going to say anything that hasn't been said by people much wiser than me in a much better fashion a million different times? Prodigal son, probably one of the most preached on passages in the New Testament, and then I had a much difficult, more different problem, but also a difficult problem in Luke chapter 16 and figuring out what I was going to preach on out of Luke chapter 16, the first part of the chapter. Because this has been a passage which I think tends to be skipped over by people because it's a little difficult to figure out what indeed it's saying. And I know I'm not ashamed to admit that because as part of my preparation, I listened to a, a sermon by my father preaching on this passage and he confessed himself a bit perplexed. He said his, his own theory was that uh, Jesus speaking here was being ironic in his language, saying if, you're, if you make friends of the unrighteous, uh, unrighteous mammon, go ahead and see whether they have everlasting, everlasting habitations to receive you into. Well, that's not quite my interpretation, but he did also note that J.C. Ryland, speaking about this passage, says we'll really never actually know perfectly what Jesus was saying until we're able to actually ask him for ourselves. Well, as I was digging into this passage, I discovered, I think, uh, certainly in my uh, view and review of this passage, that not only is it a little bit difficult to interpret the message of this passage, but once you actually get the message that's being given by this passage, I think, the message itself is a very hard word as well. It's a very difficult passage of scripture because not simply interpreting the message, but applying it as well. And each one of us has this uh, truth about different parts of scripture because there are certain parts of scripture that we respond to in a certain way. Oh, I, I like this passage of scripture. This goes nicely in keeping with my own prejudices, not in a negative way, but my own prejudgments, my own way of thinking, my own natural bent. So I like this passage. I'm going to underline this one. <laughs> this is a good one. And sometimes, depending on our frame of mind, I'm going to underline this one for the next time that somebody tries to argue with me that that's not what the Bible says. And then there's other parts of Scripture in which we say, well, not sure this is really... I mean, it's saying this, but I'm not sure it really means this. Let me find other parts of Scripture that it can balance 
balance this out, you know, so I can remove the discomfort that is implied by what is being taught. And usually we can see this much more clearly in others. We could say, those people at that church, they preach a lot about this, these passages of Scripture, but they never talk about these other pieces of Scripture, these other passages that I hold to and that I take very, very seriously and give great importance to. And sometimes we have a little bit more difficulty seeing the beams in our own eye. Well, this passage is, I think, for almost everyone, difficult uh, to interpret. But the message as well about serving God and money is something that is very countercultural to us, certainly in this nation, certainly in this world, and at any time that has ever existed. And yet, as we, as we read this passage, I think it's impossible not to place it contextually with the other teachings that we see in Scripture and understand that this is a very serious and important thing for us to ponder, for us to think about, for us to allow to play upon our own life and apply. It's one that I myself have great difficulty. There's other parts where I say, oh man, this is, this is easy for me in, to interpret. Get out the James Magnuson report card, I give myself a nice solid B. Well, this is one which is a little bit, uh, my grade would be, I'm ashamed to say, a bit lower. And this is, very simply, a, a message, I think, a parable on our use of the resources that are given to us. And specifically, specifically in this context, I think it has broader, broader application, which I'll get to, but specifically in the area of money. Now let's dig into what the passage is actually saying, what the story I think is actually saying before we get into the actual interpretation. There's a rich man, he has a steward. A steward would have been somebody like a fiduciary. Steward was somebody who was given actual ability to make decisions. There would have been servants or slaves back then who were not given as much freedom. They were simply given a task, told to perform it, and that was all that they had to do. Uh, we uh, know that Joseph was a steward, uh, even while being a servant, but it was a, higher, it was a higher calling because you were entrusted with certain resources. And this was a steward who had been entrusted with resources and who had been accused of wasting them. And we don't know... Uh, necessarily whether he had wasted them in the sense of using them on himself or simply wasted them by neglect. But we have a pretty good idea that this steward knew that he was caught. Because when he is called to give an account of his stewardship, that is to say, to give a, an accounting of what he had done, he said, I'm out. I'm going to be, this stewardship is going to be taken away from me. He didn't say, I'm going to vindicate my myself, I'm going to clear my name. He said, I'm going to be out. He, he knew. He knew what was coming. Now, what was interesting, what's interesting is that he wasn't out yet. Note that he says here in verse 4, I'm resolved what to do that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. In other words, this is a man who he saw the writing on the wall. He knew where he was going. He was going out the door and he was going out into the streets. And he had a very, very very strong antipathy to getting money in a 
physical laboring sort of way. He says he cannot. We don't know if that was actually true. But he says, I can't work uh, digging, and I don't want to beg. That would be shameful. That would be embarrassing for me. And so I'm going to figure something else out. And what he figured out, again, he was still steward, was he went to a variety of people, and he said, hey, what's your debt? A hundred uh, measures of oil. Apparently, this would be 600 gallons of oil, which at that time, with olive oil, that would have been extremely, extremely precious. He said, you owe 100? Write down 50. He cut the debt in half. Went to another person. hundred measures of wheat this person owed. And he said, write down four score, or 80. Uh, he had owed 65 bushels, and he cut that by 20%. Now, if we just pause here, this seems like a fairly straightforward parable. There was an unrighteous steward who was wasteful, or he was certainly not doing his job as a steward. And when he heard he was about to be fired, he said, I got to look out for my own best interests, and I'm going to go out here and make sure that the debts owed to my, my boss are completely, completely cut down in a way that benefits really no one but myself. Now, I've heard some interpretations of this passage that actually, because usury was not allowed back then, that people kind of uh, built this into the purchase price of goods. So that maybe this hundred measures of oil was only worth the price of 50 measures of oil. I'm not sure I see that in this parable. Perhaps culturally that would have been true. And so under this interpretation, this uh, steward was doing wisely. He was protecting. Uh, he, was, he was not ripping off his boss. He was actually protecting him. I'm not sure I can go along with that interpretation. I think more clearly, the more clear implication is that this steward all of a sudden said, I got to look out for number one. I got to look out for myself. It's time for me to make sure that I have somewhere to land when I'm thrown out of this nest. And so he said, I'm going to make some friends. I'm going to make some friends. They're going to be excited because they're going to know that it was from me. Now, notice, however, the way that he does it. He doesn't steal himself. He doesn't take things himself. He does something which... I can't say for certain, but appears to have been legal. As steward, he was entrusted in doing these things. And he was able to write down the debts of his boss. So it appears that he's doing something legal, something that he will not face criminal punishment for, a criminal justice system at the time that was extremely harsh. And he's able to do this legally. And he says, I'm going to get fired anyway, so all that he can do is fire me again. He can't get this money back from me. He can't criminally prosecute me. And as a result, his boss, though probably smarting a bit from the a pain to his pocketbook, nevertheless commended him. It's hard for us to understand. It seems to us that this parable should be about how terrible this steward is. He's looking out for number one. He's not fulfilling what has been entrusted to him. He is using the resources that were under his care to care for himself and for his future needs. The Lord commends him because he had done wisely. 
For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. He was shrewd. He was complimented. He was commended by the master for his shrewdness, for his intelligence. Seems almost the, the feeling I get from this passage is him going, you got me. Oh, clever move. You got me. Now, he's probably not going to hire him again, but he's going, boy, you, you, you really got me there. And maybe thinking to himself, I, once I heard that he was probably on the way out, maybe I should have made sure he didn't have the ability to change any of my debtor-creditor relationships in the future. And so the message from this seems odd, especially in verse 9. Verse 9 I, read, I had us read all the way to verse 18 because it was a, it's a reminder. This is all part of one thought, I think. And I think it's uh, of a piece with Luke chapter 15 and the prodigal uh, son. And I think it's of a piece with uh, the uh, story of the rich man and Lazarus at the end of this passage. And I'll get into this in a second. But we have a very difficult verse here. Just like verse 18 about married, divorce and remarriage is difficult. Verse 9 is difficult. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon, or money, of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And then he goes on to passages, or to verses, that we perhaps hear more, but we don't always hear in, our, in their context. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now I think the message, this point of this parable, is... Really what it says here in verse 8, at the end of verse 8. The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. What is commended about this steward? Certainly not his character. His character is not commended. His faithfulness is not commended. His shrewdness is commended. The, the uh, servant had decided to care very uh, care for in a concrete way his future. And he knew this was the way he was going to do it. This was the easiest way for him to do it without being forced to beg or forced to work, was taking the resources that had been given to him and entrusted to him by another and using those resources in a way that would ensure his own long-term future. And simply put, I think the message of this parable is quite simple which is that each one of us have been entrusted with a variety of good things. Money, uh, time, perhaps youth, perhaps health, perhaps family, the gifts that we're given in terms of our own personal strengths that we have been given, even the Spirit of God working in our life. We've been given a number of gifts. We've been entrusted with a number of things. And the question is, are we using those for our eternal future? I think that's what uh, uh, Christ is saying. That the children of this world will do everything, if they're wise, if they're shrewd, they will do everything to ensure their future. They will invest. They'll be shrewd. They will be careful. They will even cut some throats. 
They'll even betray trust to ensure that their future is cared for. Now, he's not saying that that ought to be our attitude towards our time on this earth. I don't think the message of this parable is this is how we ought to operate in our financial matters. What he is saying is spiritually, we have been entrusted with something, and our focus should be similar to ensure that uh, our future. Now, uh, this is a future that is uh, one of eternal significance, not earthly significance. But it comes down to a very basic point that is uh, set forth here in verses 10 through 13, which is that we will be judged someday on what we do with what has been committed to us. That our spiritual future, that our eternal reward will be based to some extent in what has been entrusted to us. And therefore, we should be extremely thoughtful and careful with how to deal with it. Now, again, I've said that this is a hard message. Because each one of us, in reviewing the New Testament and seeing what uh, God says about mon of money in his word, has probably been challenged at some point by that teaching. And what we do with it depends, perhaps, on uh, how... Uh, uh, soft our heart is towards God at that specific moment. But there are some very difficult messages relating to money throughout the New Testament. Well, think about when Jesus says, anyone who asks of you, you should give to. Now, of course, we understand that with all of these things, there are balancing truths. There are. How difficult, how hard it is. All, it's impossible with man for a rich man to get into the heaven, to get into heaven, to get into the kingdom. Now, with God, all things are possible. And yet, we see some of these passages. Man, they are a challenge to us. And yet, these are things that we ought to truly and uh, faithfully look into. Some of these messages, as I said, are easier for us to understand and for easier for us to apply. If, for example, we are kind of law-abiding citizens and we're, we're uh, responsible, the passage about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's is not revolutionary or difficult for us. Oh yeah, I pay my taxes. I don't try to cheat on my taxes. I don't try to play games to ensure that I am uh, uh, not paying what I am responsible for. But for others, that may be a very difficult passage to apply. Certainly, for the disciples hearing that, and certainly for the Pharisees hearing that, that was an extremely challenging thing to apply because not only in their flesh did they not want to pay any money out. We see a very nice, concise description of the Pharisees. They were covetous. You see it. Uh, uh, they were not simply filled with pride. That's a great description of them. But as we see represented their character, they were covetous. So many of their decisions came from this uh, love of money and he was taking specific aim at that attitude. And they were covetous. They derided him for these sayings. And they derided him. They would have derided him, certainly, I'm sure, derided him privately for the saying, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And there are other passages that, again, if we truly uh, acknowledge them and uh, truly allow the Spirit to convict them on them, 
uh, us on them are very challenging. The love of money being the root of all evil. We, we are very aware of that. We generally tend to apply that to others. Well, I don't love money. I, I just need it. I don't love money, but I mean, listen, I do like a, a few, little, few little nice things that come with it, but I don't, I don't love money. I mean, the people who love money are the, the rich people, and I'm not rich, and nobody really thinks they're rich. I, you know, compared to the whole world population, maybe I am actually doing quite well, but I mean, I'm not rich. I'm lower middle class. You know, the, the, the rich people are the ones who have more than me. Everyone looks at it that way. I'm, the rich people are the ones who have more than me. Well. That's a challenging question. That's a challenging issue. How about the things in Scripture about being charitable? I already mentioned giving to anyone that asks of you. How about the things about if somebody tries to take away your coat, you give them your cloak as well? That's challenging to us not simply on an economic, economic financial level. That's challenging to us on simply a personal feeling of self-vindication, of strength, of self-reliance level. Somebody's going to come at me. I don't get to even protect my own funds. I have to give them extra. Again, there are balancing truths for this, but these are things that we need to uh, deal with. And then, and then for some, a very simple, straightforward passage saying that somebody who doesn't provide for the needs of their own household, their own family, is worse than an infidel. Well, hey, listen, I'm taking care of my family, so it doesn't apply to me. That's an easy passage. Well, are we, apply, are we uh, actually allowing all of the implications of that to wash over for us? What does wash over us? What does that provision actually look like? What does it actually mean? Well, these are the challenging messages that I think come out from this passage. I mean, just the difficulty in verse 13 uh, by itself. If we actually, actually look at our behavior, if we actually look at and allow the Spirit to convict us in the way that we prioritize certain things in our life, this should be very challenging to us. No servant can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. And how many of us, if we looked at what our time and our labor and the amount of time thinking about uh, things, what has our investment been? Has our investment been in the things of God or money? More during the last week, during the last month, during the last year, during a lifetime. This is the challenge. Now, there was a verse that jumped out to me, though, in reading this that I had never really noticed in this passage before. And this is something that I think ought to guide our interpretation of this and everything to do uh, with uh, how we deal with the things that have been entrusted to us. So the Pharisees, they hear this, they're covetous. Full stop. Pharisees, they're covetous, they want money, they want goods, and they derided him. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. Well, we already knew about the Pharisees, that they were prideful, that they were vain. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Now, what's he talking about here? 
Certainly, I think he's talking about pride. He's talking about pride. Your, your pride, your, highly, uh, your high esteem that you covet is abominable in the sight of God. But this is kind of a, this is a little bit more of a generalized statement. That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. What's he talking about? I think this is tied into what we have read about in verse 13. You cannot serve God in man. I think it's also tied into what we see in verse 18. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. What's he talking about in this passage from 1 to 18? He's talking about two of the greatest drivers of human behavior that have ever existed. Money and sexual congress. Those are the two things that motivate people maybe more than anybody, anything else historically. And he's saying, he's talking about these things. And it's important to say, it's, he's not saying money is an abomination. Necessarily. He's not saying, and we know that uh, marital relations are a great blessing from God, and they're they are not abominable. What he's talking about is the love and the connection and the passion and the desire and the service to these things that takes the part of our service to God. He's talking about this as abominable. Now, we have many other sins that we see in Scripture as abominable. I think it would be difficult for each one of us to, uh, to identify the amount of feeling of disgust that ought to be kind of uh, uh, curried up by the term abominable and applied to covetousness. Why is that? Because covetousness is a, a symptom of this age and one that each one of us, no doubt, has struggled with at various points in our life. And one that is constantly being sold to us from every corner of our, uh, of our media, our social media, even many times of our conversation. And so this covetousness, what does it lead to? He's saying this covetousness, this, this, this uh, desire for man's acclaim, this, this attitude of the Pharisees is an abomination. And what does it lead to? Well, the reason it's an abomination is because it uh, leads to you being unfaithful, unjust, and serving mammon. Now what is it to be unfaithful or unjust in the serve in the uh, goods to which you have been uh, given, the goods that you have, have been entrusted to you? Well, to some extent we see this reflected here in the parable. But each one of us needs to understand that any goods that we've been entrusted with, we are in the same uh, the same position as this steward. Now, there's nothing that we have been given that we truly own. If not if we're a child of God. If we've been given anything, we have been given it for the service of God. Now, am I standing up here to say that this is a, a call to kind of a hair shirt Christianity? It's that it's wrong to uh, get some enjoyment? Well, God has given us good things to enjoy. That is a balancing principle. However, we look at our lives, how much of that balancing principle has swallowed up the rest of it? How much of it has swallowed up what is uh, a very clear principle that we are given stewardship over the resources that we are given? 
and that we have been given resources to steward, and that like the unjust steward, we ought to be spending our time ensuring that these resources lead to, to uh, eternal habitations. In other words, that they are used not to be laid up for heavenly for earthly rewards, but to be laid up for heavenly. Now, this is uh, the application is where this becomes even more difficult. Where does the rubber hit the road? Because each one of us, no doubt, even even myself, is able to justify a tremendous amount when it comes to things that we want to do. And in fact, we spend a lot of time, perhaps, wrestling with these things in order for us to avail ourselves of our excuses that we have made to end up where we want. I'll tell you what, I'm not sure there are that many people here who their natural bent is to just give away all their money, spend it all for the kingdom of God. Probably not a lot. You know what? If those people existed, maybe they would need a little bit more of a reminder of the balancing truth of the necessity of being a good steward, of meeting their own needs, of meeting the needs of their family, and things of that nature. That, that is an important balancing truth here. I think more than likely, I know for myself, but for others, that this is the truth that needs, is needed to balance our, our nature, which is to use our money to meet our own needs. Meet our own needs, both in terms of our long-term futures, meet our perceived needs in terms of the things that make us happy, that bring us joy, and even, like the Pharisees, meet our needs for acclamation and approval. The Pharisees were not ungenerous. They sometimes were. They certainly, when it came to dealing with their, their parents, they loved to give the money to God and say, Corban, it is a gift and I can't give you uh, in charity. But they loved to announce their gifts to the temple and make a big deal out of it. But that was to meet their own needs and to get their own rewards. Now, why is this so essential? Because it is so countercultural. Because it is so contrary to our own flesh. That it, in following this passage, in following the other passages in the New Testament that relate to these subjects, we have a mighty testimony that is completely unavailable to anyone else. Now, I was, I've been reading a book by a secular historian talking about, uh, uh, the, about Christianity and its effect on the world. And one of the stories that I read in this book that was fascinating to me that is from the writings of a, an emperor of Rome named Julian the Apostate. And Julian was a descendant of Constantine, I think a great nephew perhaps. He was raised Christian, and he was a Christian. And he, as he got older, he decided Christianity was for the birds, and he was going back to tradition. He was going back to what made Rome the great empire that it had once been. He was not alone in saying Rome is on the way down. Rome is really struggling. And he said, you know, the problem with Rome is that we've thrown away our faith. And he, he called the Christians the Galileans. He said these, these wild Galileans, they've kind of taken over in society. And we need to go back to the, the, the pagan rituals that made us, made us a power over all the world. And one of the things, though, in this book that they mentioned 
uh, that were in the, the letters of Julian was that Julian went and looked at some of the pagan temples that had been uh, touchstones for Roman religious life. And he sent out a letter that said a, a requirement that people who followed this certain god, who was uh, a pagan god of the Romans, donate 20% of their income to the poor. And he was fuming in the letter that the Galileans were taking care of not only their own poor, much better than the Romans did, but the Roman poor as well. And he said, they're, they're winning so many people this way. Now, what was fascinating, this, this book noted, was that his call to the Roman citizens to step up their charity had almost no effect, even though he was the emperor. Because guess what? The Romans didn't really want to give more money, and they had no eternal reason that they would do so. They were looking for any opportunity that they could to continue to use this money on themselves. And it drove Julian the Apostate crazy, and Julian the Apostate's reign uh, did not lead to what he hoped it would be. But the Christian church, not simply historically, this was in about 300 AD, but before then, was noted as one that was extremely, extremely generous. We, we see this in Acts in the early church, a very, another very challenging passage about the extreme generosity reflected in these early Christians. Selling property, property, owning real property would have been such a guarantor of future security. And these people were selling it, taking that money, and giving it to those in need. A very, very difficult and hard passage for us to understand and for us to apply in our present age, even though each one of us, uh, in many ways, has much more than those early Christians did. And so this ought to be a challenge. This ought to be a challenge. The challenge, the individual application, is going to look different for each one of us. Because Jesus doesn't call us to a one-size-fits-all standard of the use of our money. He doesn't. Jesus called the rich young ruler to give away all that he had and give it all to the poor. He doesn't call each one of us necessarily to that same thing. Each one of us has different, a different calling when it comes to this thing. This, this area, not simply of money, but other things that perhaps we may be more jealous of. Our time, our, uh, our uh, company, who we spend time with. And yet, this is the revolutionary call that is made by this passage and that we ought to each be a, uh, seeking to apply with the help of the Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. That we do not serve the things that we have been entrusted with. That is not what we serve. And to the extent we have been entrusted with them, they are entrusted to us that we might use them for our master. Why? It's not entirely unself-interested. Jesus was very clear throughout Scripture. You will, you are investing when you use the things that you are given for me. You are investing. You are leading to eternal rewards. And to some extent, when it comes to generosity, in fact, even rewards in this present, though we don't, uh, we don't depend on that. 
But Jesus was saying, no, 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 this is not a lack of self-interest. This is not a call to simply uh, uh, do things just for the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ is in your best interest. And therefore, we need to evaluate in each one of our own lives what we've been entrusted. It's good to make uh, inventories, I think, for ourselves as well. It's not a bad exercise to every now and then sit down and say, what have I been entrusted with? What have I been given? What goods have been placed in my charge? And what am I using those goods for? What am I investing those goods in? Am I investing goods simply for the purpose of having more goods in the future? Am I investing goods uh, in things that will lead to greater happiness for myself? Am I investing goods, again, time, effort, specific pouring into specific relationships, money? Am I doing these things for the service of getting more of those things or using those things on myself or the things that bring me joy or, or uh, are in line with my passions? Or am I a servant of God? Am I serving God and uh, the reason that he has entrusted me with these things as opposed to the things themselves? It's a challenging teaching. It's something that will lead to being derided. One last thing that I want to point out. Jesus wasn't derided here uh, by the, uh, the worldly people. Jesus was being derided by the Pharisees. The Pharisees who in reviewing the Old Testament would have had to have seen the extremely challenging passages in Isaiah and elsewhere about the necessity where, of, of, of uh, radical generosity, of caring for other people. They would have seen these things, and yet they still derided him. And this is something that we, you know what? There might be a voice of derision, not simply around us, but in our own heads, if we are to consider what uh, the Lord may be challenging us and calling us to do. So, when I come to this passage, you may come to a different uh specific interpretation of what this parable is saying, who, who the master represents, who the unrighteous servant represents, whether this is being ironic, what the lesson is. But certainly it's impossible to interpret verses 10 through 13 in any, any other way. To interpret it in any other way that we as Christians need to be the servants of God, not the servants of money. And here's the question I'll leave you with. Here's the question I'll leave you with. If you're able to say, James, no, I, I, I'm serving God, I'm not serving money. What I would challenge you is to sit and think and say, in what ways are the ways that I relate to the things of this earth different than the ways that a worldly person in my position would do it? Now you might say, well, hold on, I, I give money generously, I give money to in specific uh, to specific causes. Maybe I give money to church and a worldly person wouldn't do that. And yet worldly people themselves, they give to charitable causes. That's not necessarily something that distinguishes a Christian. In what way is your uh, use of the things that you have been entrusted with something that demonstrates, demonstrates uh, as the Spirit reveals to you, uh, that demonstrates your service is to God rather than those things.
This is something that's going to be challenging to me that I'm going to be thinking about this week, and I hope that you will be thinking about this week as well.